Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 4 and verses 1 through 12. Paul's epistle to the Romans chapter 4 and verses 1 through 12. Let's listen now as we hear the Word of God beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Let's take heed to this word from the Lord as we desire His blessing from it. We're seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning. Let's turn back to the passage we read from Romans chapter 4. As we focus our attention with God's help this morning upon verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3. And here the Apostle Paul begins by asking something of a, a, a rhetorical question. He's asking an important theological question, and then he, he brings in these various arguments and and hypotheticals and seeking to establish and prove what he's just asserted in the previous chapter. What then shall we say that our father Abraham has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He's quoting Genesis 15, verse 6, 
For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Or that preposition for is probably better rendered unto righteousness. It was accounted to him unto righteousness. The Apostle Paul is in the midst of a very important set of teachings that he's rehearsing before the Roman believers. No doubt they've heard of the doctrine of justification by faith alone before, but he's explaining it to them in great detail. He's shown them the need for justification in the sight of God. He's shown that all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, both Jews and Gentiles, He has systematically dismantled the Jewish claim to righteousness. He's shown their hypocrisy such that even the Gentiles blaspheme God because of their unrighteousness and their unfaithfulness. They've heard the law. They have the law. They don't keep the law. They need to be justified. They need the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. They don't have any righteousness of their own. And of course, the Gentiles have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, and they're out as well. They're all disqualified, and they all need the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness, the righteousness that God has provided for sinners by sending His Son into the world. And we've seen, as we've meticulously worked our way through chapter 3, that Paul has asserted how this righteousness comes into being. Jesus Christ has come into the world. He has paid the redemption price through His perfect obedience, through His shed blood at the cross. He's fulfilled all righteousness. All of God's commandments, He's fulfilled. All of the punishments that our sins deserve, He has suffered. He's risen again victoriously. And in doing so, He has demonstrated God's righteousness that God saves sinners and justifies sinners not by sweeping sin under the rug, but by accomplishing and fulfilling and, and, and redeeming all that is necessary according to His attribute of righteousness. And so God's righteousness is demonstrated. God Himself in that sense is justified publicly. His righteousness is shown forth. And Paul has then applied this to say, listen, there's one God and He's going to justify Jew and Gentile. He's going to justify any or every demographic or sort of person in the same way through and by faith. Not by works, lest any man should boast. He's asserted this, but now he's demonstrating it. Now he's going to begin to appeal to various portions of of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible in particular, the Old Testament Scriptures. He's going to be citing relevant classic texts that deal with justification. And he's going to be arguing against these Pharisaical Judaizers. These people that have been so much under the influence of the the first century Jewish mentality. The, The Pharisaical teaching concerning man's righteousness before God involving his works, both moral and ceremonial. They've been so influenced by this. Even perhaps some of the believers in Rome have been impacted and and turned aside in some way. We know that happened in Galatia. But Paul is now bringing the authority of the Scriptures. What do the Scriptures say? That's how we need to answer these questions. That's how we need to answer 
every single question that, that we run across in terms of faith and practice in the Christian life. God has revealed to us all that we need for life and godliness to equip us for every good work. It's the basis of the church determining what it's going to preach and teach. The doctrine of the church, the government of the church, the worship of the church, the discipline of the church, faith and morals, however you want to say it. Scripture alone decides these things. And the Apostle Paul is putting this into practice. He says, what do the Scriptures say? What saith the Scriptures? In answering this most fundamental question of how man can be right with God. Uh, And I realize just having said, you know, what say the Scriptures? It may seem inappropriate to quote some extra-biblical sources here, but listen to what our forefathers thought about the importance of this doctrine of justification which Paul proves from the Scriptures. Because it's so important to realize how valuable the Bible is because it answers the most basic, fundamental questions about how we can be right with God, how we can know we have eternal life, how we can rejoice in the presence of God and not cower in fear and dread of damnation. John Calvin said this, quote, whenever knowledge of this doctrine of justification is taken away, The glory of Christ is extinguished, religion abolished, the church destroyed, and the hope of salvation utterly overthrown. And he's right. The question Paul's addressing in our passage is vital, it's fundamental. You take this out of the Jenga stack, it all falls to pieces. Martin Luther, quote, without this article, the world is utter death and darkness. End quote. Not just the uh, doctrine on which the church stands or falls. Luther's going further. He's saying without this article, the world, the world itself is utter death and darkness. This is a very important question that Paul is addressing. The biblical doctrine of justification. Our own larger catechism has summarized this biblical doctrine of justification in the following way. And I want to be clear here. The reason we have the larger catechism or the shorter catechism is not to demonstrate or prove the doctrine of justification. It's to summarize and teach what the Bible says about how man is made right with God and various other important questions. So we're not saying, oh, we believe it because the catechism said it, but we're saying here's a summary that we can then dive in and prove from the Scriptures. But listen to this summary of the doctrine that uh, essentially Luther and Calvin are just, were just now speaking of. Justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners in which He pardoneth all their sins accepteth and accounteth their persons righteous in His sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. So much of that statement, I'm going to read it again in just a moment, so much of that statement is founded and grounded in Romans chapter 4 and Romans chapter 5 and and various other portions of Paul's writings especially. 
But again, listen to this. Justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners. God justifies the ungodly, as we'll see, Lord willing, in a future sermon, uh, which is right there in our text. He justifies the ungodly. This is an act of God's free grace unto sinners, in which He pardoneth all their sins. The blood of Christ, John says, cleanseth us from all sin accepteth and accounteth their persons righteous in His sight. Ephesians 1, we are accepted in the Beloved. Notice this is key. Not for anything wrought in them or done by them. It's very important we understand these two threats to the doctrine of, of justification as set forth in the Bible. It's not because of anything wrought in them or done by them that sinners are justified, but only for the perfect obedience, Christ's fulfilling of the precepts of the law, and full satisfaction of Christ, that's His suffering and death, only for those two things, and it is by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. Now the important thing here is that there are these two threats to the doctrine of justification. And of course, we're ready and equipped to deal with the second threat that our catechism mentions, works done by them. So we say, well, we're justified by faith, not by works. We're not justified by the things that we do. And there are many people who don't hold to the doctrine of justification by faith alone who will willingly admit that we're not justified by this crass notion of just doing things and earning our salvation, earning our way to heaven. They'll say, oh yeah, it's, it's not by anything done by us. That's crass. That's just not even Roman Catholics hold that and, and so on and so forth. Which actually, it's true. Catholics do not hold the strictly crass notion that we work our way to heaven. Roman Catholics would hold largely the first of these two positions that we're justified for something wrought in us. Something wrought in us. So the works that we do that factor into our right standing with God, according to Roman Catholics, according to Federal Vision, according to so many people who deny this teaching, they say the works that are done by us, yes, they factor in, but they factor in because God has wrought them in us. God has done this. God has enabled me by the Holy Spirit to live in a certain way, to live by faith, to exercise faith. And so I've exercised faith and my faith works itself out through love. And, and, and so God has sovereignly wrought in me these things that now factor into my justification. You see how you can, you can sort of baptize and sanctify these heretical teachings and, and the catechism is well aware of this. And they say, no, no, Your right standing with God is exclusively grounded in what Jesus did. It's not even grounded in what the Holy Spirit may enable you to do. And it's great that He does enable you to exercise faith and to live a holy life and to walk in obedience. But you see, even that sanctified obedience is imperfect. It's not uh, a basis for right standing with God. It's not even... Uh, it, it just because the Holy Spirit wrought it in you and it's the handiwork of God, it's still not sufficient for your justification. Understand that. Because as we dive into Romans chapter 4, we're going to find that there are 
nuances here where people are going to try to misinterpret these verses to say, well, Abraham's justified by faith in the sense that, well, he exercised faith. And his faith is his righteousness. And therefore, we're right with God on the basis of of faith that the Spirit has wrought in us. And glory be to God, just like the Pharisee at the temple. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. I thank you that you've made me different. Uh, You've wrought in me this faith, and therefore I'm righteous. My friends, that's, that's just as heretical as saying that you went on a pilgrimage to Rome and kissed the Pope's feet, and now you're saved. It's just as heretical in principle as to say that your right standing with God is your own exercise of faith and the sanctified fruits that follow. Just as heretical and just as damnable. So we need to be very careful of the nuances. Now, let's dive in. Verse 1. Paul begins his argument to prove and demonstrate his position. That it's faith as an empty hand receiving what Christ did that makes us right with God. He says, what then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Do you see verses 1 and 2? And Paul begins initially here by addressing this Jewish objection to what Paul has been asserting in the previous chapter. He has to deal with it yet again. We have Abraham as our father. This is what the Jews, uh, the unconverted ones, the Pharisees used against John the Baptist. He called them to faith and repentance. He said, repent, bring forth its fruits. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet, they continued to say, we have Abraham as our father. And Jesus had to rebuke this to the point of telling the parable of the, uh, the rich man and Lazarus where throughout, if you follow the story that Jesus tells, the, the unconverted rich man ends up in hell. And he calls out to Father Abraham. See, he's a Jew. He's a son of Abraham. Father Abraham. And, and Father Abraham responds to him, my son, right? So you have someone who is an acknowledged son of Abraham as a covenant child, as an ethnic descendant. He's a child of Abraham. He can speak of Abraham as my father, and Abraham speaks of him as his son, and yet he's burning in hell. And Father Abraham is, in principle, as it were, a million miles away, enjoying the courts of heaven. Father Abraham. Be careful with that. Be careful with that as a Christian, thinking that you're saved because your parents profess faith. You're saved because you're baptized. You're saved from your sins because of some hereditary or ecclesiastical status that you have. Uh, He he has to address this. Now later in the chapter, he's going to talk about that every believer is a child of Abraham by faith. But here he's addressing those who, who try to rebuff the doctrine of justification by faith alone, who try to fend off the gospel by speaking of Abraham our father. He says, what shall we then say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? I think the King James orders the words here so that you could take it as Abraham our father according to the flesh, but I don't think that's the the right way to read it. Um, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? 
Uh, the way our translation orders it brings out, I think, the correct meaning here. Of course, Abraham is the father of the Jews according to the flesh, but uh, the, the way the grammar is used here and the, the way that Paul is arguing, it makes far more sense to say, uh, what has Abraham our father found according to the flesh? In other words, what has he gained by human effort? And in verse 2, you see uh, almost uh, an explanation of what that phrase according to the flesh means when he says, for if Abraham was justified by works. So for him to find something according to the flesh and him to be justified by works, these things are equivalent. He's saying, was he justified by works? In other words, justified according to the flesh? What has he gained by human effort? If you go to Galatians chapter 4, where Paul is contrasting the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, particularly of Abraham, uh, with the spiritual descendants. You've got the Jews who reject Christ. You've got the Gentiles who believe in Christ. And he's saying that the Jews who reject Christ are like Ishmael's. They're children of the flesh. Abraham begat Ishmael according to the flesh in the natural human way, without any supernatural, miraculous interposition by God. But Isaac was a child of promise. He was born supernaturally from Sarah's dead womb. And from Abraham, who who was as, well, at that point, far later on, was as good as dead. But Isaac, Isaac's the child of promise. He represents Jews and Gentiles who believe but Ishmael is the child of the flesh. You can see that in uh, Galatians 4:21 through 23. So that phrase, according to the flesh, he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. It means according to human effort. And the apostle deals with this in a somewhat parallel passage in Philippians chapter 3 when he's speaking of the, the all-surpassing excellency of knowing Christ and being found in Him. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, he contrasts the salvation he has in Christ with his circumcision, with having confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. In other words, confidence in what I've gained by human effort, what I've gained through my religion, through my labors, through my efforts. He says, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. It's a human effort human religiosity. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ, yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. What has Abraham found according to the flesh? What has he gained according to the flesh? Paul says, I gained nothing according to the flesh. It was all liability and no asset. It was all in the debt column. It's all loss. 
rubbish. He says that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. What has Abraham found according to the flesh? Paul found nothing, less than nothing, according to the flesh. Uh, And so Paul builds on this. He says, okay, hypothetically, if Abraham was justified by works according to the flesh, if that's the case, then he would have something to boast about in the presence of God. Well, what does he mean, justified by works? What exactly does he mean? Well, he's not using it the same way that the Apostle James uses this phrase. You can go to James 2. We don't have time to uh, wrestle with that in detail or at length this morning. But if you go to James chapter 2, verse 14 and following, you'll see that the Apostle James is addressing a situation where somebody makes a claim. Somebody makes a profession. I have faith. And then there's an examination of that faith. And there's somebody else who says, well, you say you have faith, but I'll show you and demonstrate my faith by my deeds, by my works. As Jesus says, by your fruit, they'll know you. By their fruit, you'll know them. Uh, I'll show you evidence of my faith. So you've got somebody making a profession and a claim to having faith, and then somebody evaluating that profession. And James is saying, well, how do we wrestle with this? And he begins to speak of Abraham later in his life. Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 15.6, he believed, he was justified in the sight of God. But now Genesis 22, Abraham's faith is tested. And it's shown, it's demonstrated, it's vindicated to be genuine faith. He's shown to truly be a converted, justified believer. All that he's professed, all that God has done in his life is shown publicly for all to see that it is valid, that it is genuine. And and there's nothing uh, really in some sense more common than this in the Scriptures where works justify words. Paul has even spoken this way of God Himself. Chapter 3, verse 4 of Romans. Uh, He says, Let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified. This is quoting Psalm 51. He's saying that God may be justified in His words and may overcome when He is judged. So in other words, God, we saw this in previous sermon, God is justified. He uses the language of justification. He says when God says something and then later God does it and He comes through, whether it's fulfilling a promise or whether it's bringing judgment that He's promised, that He's threatened, fulfilling a threat, that when God brings that work to pass, it justifies the word that he spoke, that he may be justified in his words. That's exactly what James is talking about. Paul deals with this all over the place. He says there are people that profess to know God, Titus 1.16, but deny Him by their works. Okay? So there's a sense in which believers need to be justified by works. Not in the presence of God, but when you profess to be a Christian, that claim that you're making will bear itself out in your life. Faith, if it's saving faith, works itself out by love. And your Christian life brings the fullness, the completion, the the vindication 
of that profession of faith that you've made uh, in the presence of other people. They see and they know you by your fruits. But Paul is dealing with something very different here. Paul is speaking of justification in the courtroom of heaven, not before the watching world, not before the, the, the elders of the church evaluating a credible profession, but rather before God. Before God. You see that in verse 2 of our text. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Right? You drive into the lane and somebody swats the ball away, you know, not before God. Dikembe Mutombo, not going to happen. You're not going to bring that in here. Um, Paul says, we're talking about before God. You are not going to be declared righteous in the sight of God by your own righteousness. You're not going to bring boasting into the presence of God. But you see the Pharisaical teachers and preachers of that day taught otherwise. And one of the reasons they taught otherwise is because they gave too much weight to what we call the Apocrypha. Uh, the various Jewish historical and doctrinal writings during the 400 years of silence where there were no prophets of God uh, in between the last prophet, let's say Malachi, certainly the last book of our Old Testament. You've got Malachi. You've got 400 years of silence and then the birth of Christ. Uh, there's this what we call the intertestamental period where there's no Scripture written, there are no new praise songs composed, so, so they're singing the Psalms exclusively. Uh, it's a period in which this Apocrypha was written. These various historical and doctrinal writings, which are interesting, informative, edifying. Uh, they used to print them as part of the Bible at certain portions of church history so that people could have some sense of what was happening in between the Old and the New Testament. And if you read through the Apocrypha, it'll make a lot of sense why Jesus and the apostles spend so much time rebuking the Jews for their false doctrine. Because you read the Apocrypha, and there's, there's false doctrine right in there. Listen to prayer of Manasseh, chapter 1, verse 8. Listen to how it presents Abraham. Thou therefore, O Lord, that art the God of the just, hast not appointed repentance to the just, as to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, which have not sinned against thee, but thou hast appointed repentance unto me that am a sinner. That's King Manasseh, supposedly. Um, that's uh, his prayer of repentance. So he confesses, I'm a sinner, but you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they did not sin against you. And, and so you did not require them to repent. False doctrine. I don't think Manasseh ever prayed that. But if he did, he was dead wrong. And the people who imbibed this teaching were influencing the first century Jewish community to a great extent. This idea that Abraham does have something to boast about and that he was justified by his faithfulness. 1 Maccabees 2, 51 and 52. Listen to this. Quote, Call to remembrance what acts our fathers did in their time so shall ye receive great honor and an everlasting name. Was not Abraham found faithful in temptation, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness? End quote. So they're saying his right standing with God, the, the content of what we know to be Genesis 15 verse 6, 
was not that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him unto righteousness, but rather Abraham was found faithful in temptation and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. You see, James is having to deal with this. James is saying, listen, yes, Abraham, his profession of faith was justified by works in Genesis chapter 22. His claim to be a believer was vindicated. He was found faithful in temptation. But Genesis 15.6 does not say Abraham was faithful and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. But it says Abraham believed God, believed in the Lord, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. So we really need to take this very seriously. Uh, And and no no question about it, this motivated the Roman Catholic Church in the, the 16th century at the Council of Trent to incorporate the Apocrypha into their quote unquote Bible. You see, Satan isn't very creative, or at least he doesn't have to be, because it's just the same old stuff being uh, recycled through the system. False teaching concerning uh, justification. That it wasn't Abraham's faith, it was his faithfulness, his obedience, his works, wrought in him by the Spirit, no doubt. But uh, Paul says if, if that were the case, though, he would have something to boast about. Uh, What do we mean he would have something to boast about? Well, boasting is not, in principle, always sinful. We can boast in the Lord. We can glory and boast in things that God has done in and through us. Paul says that he worked harder than all the apostles, uh, but it was the grace of God working in him. Okay, There's a sense of, of making a claim about something. But when we stand before the judgment seat of God in the person of Christ, we have no such claim to make. Because all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. But you know, there is someone who does boast before the judgment seat, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He has something to boast about. Uh, again, there are these examples uh, in, in Paul's writings where in, in some kind of relative sense, you know, he makes a claim, he boasts in his infirmity. But we're talking about in the absolute sense before the throne of God. Only Christ, only Christ has a right to boast. And he does boast in his high priestly prayer. John seventeen four and 5, he says, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with You before the world was. He says, Father, I've done it. I've finished the work. Of course, He hasn't gone to the cross yet, but He's basically saying up to this point, I've done everything. I'm on the verge of going to the cross. I've done the work. I've fulfilled all righteousness. I've finished the work You've given me to do. And therefore, I claim your covenantal promise that you will exalt me. That even as I am the eternally begotten Son of God in the bosom of the Father, so now as the God-man, that that eternal glory would be reflected as I'm resurrected and glorified in, in, in my humanity for all eternity. He, he's claiming this and he's boasting. Not in a sinful way, not in an arrogant way. He's got every right to do it. I've glorified you I've finished the work. 
And you can see this even on the cross, John 19 and verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, it is finished. And He shouted with a loud voice. He's he's making a bold claim. The word boast just doesn't sound right. I understand because we use it in in the sense of being sinful, but He's boasting. And my friends, what's He doing as our high priest before the throne right now? He's boasting. He's showing forth, I have done it. I've finished the work on behalf of these, my people. And I'm interceding for them. Father, pour out upon them all the spiritual blessings laid up for them in heavenly places. I have done it. It is finished. And now would you be gracious to these, my people? Is that how Abraham prayed? Is that how Abraham entered into the presence of God? Um, Not before God. My Bible says that in Genesis 18, when Abraham came before the Lord to intercede for Sodom, that though he did intercede in a Christ-like sort of way, he came before God. He didn't say, I've finished the work. I've done it. He said, I am but dust and ashes before you. You're going to pour out fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what I deserve for my sin. I am dust and and ashes, worthy to be incinerated in the wrath of God. Joshua 24, verse 2 tells us that Abraham, before his conversion, when God effectually called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, that at that point he worshipped foreign gods. Genesis 16 says that he foolishly followed his wife's advice and took on a second wife, Hagar, and created all kinds of problems through his sin of polygamy. The Scriptures are clear, even in the psalm we sang, Psalm 143, Selection C, uh, that no one can stand in the presence of God. None of us have a righteousness that will bear itself out under the scrutiny of an all-seeing God. Our thoughts, our words, our deeds, we've all sinned. We are all disqualified from standing before the Lord in our own righteousness. And most certainly, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob needed to repent. I mean, read the book of Genesis. They're having to repent at every turn. I mean, these are godly men, sanctified men, but they're sinners and they're repenting. Even as Luther said in the first of his 95 theses, repentance is not a one-time thing. It's a daily, lifelong responsibility of every true Christian. Not before God, Abraham did not boast in this way. Not before God. And my friend, if you think you're going to come before God with anything other than the imputation, the reckoning of what Christ has accomplished on your behalf, you're going to find that on Judgment Day when you make that claim, you're going to hear these three words, as it were, not before God. Not before God will such a claim be tolerated. Now, of course, Paul draws their attention to the Scriptures. Verse 3, what does the Scripture say? Not the Apocrypha, not the so-called prayer of Manasseh, not 1 Maccabees, 2 Maccabees. No, the Scriptures. What does God's inspired Word say? Paul clearly didn't accept the Apocrypha as Scripture. He's not quoting from these other spurious books. But, But you see, the Apostle Paul is asserting Scripture as the basis for answering this question. He goes to Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God. Now, Paul's quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. If you go to the uh, Genesis 15, 6 in your Bible, you'll see the translation of the Hebrew. 
Abraham believed in Jehovah. Roughly equivalent. Uh, but, but Abraham believed God. He believed in the Lord. And it was accounted to him for or unto righteousness. Abraham believed. Notice it's not his faithfulness, but his faith. It's, it doesn't say Abraham worked and it was accounted unto righteousness. It doesn't say he, he was faithful. It says he believed. And the Scripture says this very clearly. This passage is meant to be a classic text to instruct us in the way of salvation. And Paul unfolds and describes Abraham's faith. Because if you, again, read the book of Genesis. Read Abraham's life. Read of his faith. Read Hebrews 11 as it details how he left her of the Chaldees by faith. And he trusted in the promises of God. And he believed and he offered up his son by faith. All of these things. He lived by faith. He believed God. Romans 4.17 For as it is written, I made you a father of many nations in the presence of of Him whom He believed. God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Who contrary to hope, in hope believed. So there's nothing in His experience that would, that would lend itself for Him to think that His wife would bear a child. Nothing. His body's as good as dead. Sarah's womb is as good as dead. There's nothing that would give Him hope other than the God who sovereignly calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Contrary to any human hope or expectation, in hope He believed. He he walked by faith, not by sight, not by experience, not by human worldly wisdom. We're told, verse 19, not being weak in faith, He did not consider His own body already dead since He was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him unto righteousness. He believed God, and not himself. He didn't even believe in his own faith. He believed God. He believed Jehovah. He believed God's promise. He understood it's not just the birth of a child because I'd like to have a son, but he understood that this seed of Abraham would become a great and mighty and numerous nation. And that there would come the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head would be the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He understood that God was sending a Savior, even the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus says in John 8.56, Abraham, by faith, rejoiced to see my day. He understood that this promise of a son supernaturally would ultimately be the basis upon which God's elect people can say, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, so on and so forth. God's promise of a Savior. He understood that. He believed God with respect to that. He believed God's power. El Shaddai, God Almighty, Sovereign, Almighty God who can give life to a dead womb from a dead body of Abraham. 
God's power. God's almighty power. God's faithfulness. He who promised is faithful. He knew God not only had the ability to do these things, but he was fully convinced that God would do these things because he who promised is faithful. In fact, God later in Genesis 15, as I reflected on this at the wedding yesterday, God walked down the aisle. God had Abraham cut up the animals in pieces and create a lane to walk through in which uh, ancient Middle Eastern kings, we're told, would often seal a covenant by walking through the pieces that had been divided. And the blood was sprinkled everywhere and it was a symbol that uh, you were going to be faithful to your covenant because if you weren't, uh, that, that rending to pieces would fall upon your own head. But God walked down the aisle. Abraham just sat there and watched. God's faithfulness, God's unilateral covenant faithfulness, God's sovereign grace. God walks down the aisle sealing the marriage covenant between Himself and His people. God's faithfulness is the foundation of our salvation. And He believed God's mercy. Right after, in verse 7 of Genesis 15, right after this, God reminds Abraham, I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees. I brought you out of your idolatry. I brought you out of your sin. I brought you out of darkness into the light. I brought you out of the power of Satan and liberated you under the power of God. Abraham was a hell-deserving idolater and God justified the ungodly by faith. It's not to say Genesis 15 is his conversion and his justification proper, but it's, it's a great act of faith on his part. And the author of Genesis here, Moses, is taking opportunity at this moment when the promise of the seed comes into play. He's saying this is how Abraham was right with God. This hell-deserving Chaldean idolater. This is how, by faith. In God's mercy. And in God Himself. Genesis 15 begins with God declaring to Abraham, I am your shield. I am your exceeding great reward. And so, Abraham here is receiving God Himself. Not just God's promise. Not just His power. His faithfulness. His mercy. He's receiving God Himself as His shield. He's taking refuge from the wrath to come in God Himself. And he's receiving God as his chief joy, his exceeding great reward. God's not a means to an end for Abraham. God is his chief end to glorify and enjoy God forever. And God is saying in, in that promise, Genesis 15:1, Abraham, I am yours. And we think of this in New Testament terms. God comes to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says, I am yours. All of my attributes are yours in Christ, working for your salvation, guaranteeing your eternal redemption. I've given you Christ, as uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us, that He's our wisdom from God. Listen to these verses. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So every aspect of your salvation, the wisdom that brought you to saving faith, it's from Christ. The righteousness by which you're made right with God in your justification, it's His obedience and sacrifice, it's Christ. Your sanctification is Christ by His Spirit coming into your heart, sanctifying you, transforming you, it's Christ. 
Your redemption, in other words, not just spiritually, but even the redemption of your body, the new heaven, the new earth, your, your eternal blessedness in the presence of God, it's Christ. And it goes on to say that as it is written, he who glories, he who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. That's the same gospel, dear believer, that has saved you. It's the same gospel that Abraham believed in principle, and it was accounted to him unto righteousness. Uh, In other words, he was justified. And there's at this point, there's confusion. Some people get confused. They say, well, Abraham's faith was accounted to him. And Paul kind of addresses that. Verse 9 of our chapter, he says, for we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Or again, unto righteousness. He says, we say that. We're quoting the verse. And we say faith was accounted to him unto righteousness. And you see, it's at this point that Paul has to clarify what that actually means. Because there are people who then come in, and no doubt the devil is behind it, and say, well then, you see, Abraham couldn't meet the standard of perfect obedience, so God lowered the bar and said, Abraham, I'm not going to require you to earn your salvation by obeying all Ten Commandments in thought, word, and deed, personally, perpetually, perfectly. Instead, just believe my promise and we'll, we'll call it a deal. And it's Abraham's faith that is then his righteousness in the sight of God. And, and Paul's aware of this, right? He, he says, we're quoting this verse. We're saying that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. We're looking at the way that this, this verse is worded. But he says, verse 10, how then was it accounted? And he goes on in verse 11 to say, at the end of the verse, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Okay? And if you look throughout this chapter, even at the end of verse 6, God imputes righteousness apart from works. So he's making it clear, yes, we say faith was accounted to him for righteousness. Of course, that's the language of the text. But he says to understand the meaning of the text, you have to understand that what's actually imputed to Abraham's account in the sight of God's perfect throne of justice is righteousness. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ. It's not Abraham clothed in his own fig leaves of faith. It's Abraham clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. It's righteousness that was imputed to him or accounted to him. Same word. Reckoned to him. Credited to him. Use whatever word you like from that family of words. But it's it's righteousness. It's not just Abraham's faith. Think of it this way. When it says... Abraham believed and it was credited to him or accounted to him unto righteousness. It doesn't actually say that faith in and of itself was was accounted to him. But it says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him. The best way to understand this is that the pronoun it corresponds to the antecedent of the entire phrase. that, That Abraham believing God Abraham believing God was counted to him unto righteousness. In other words, it's not merely the act of faith in and of itself, but rather it includes the object of faith. It's faith having taken hold of the righteousness of Christ. It's faith 
which was an empty hand, now it's filled with Christ. It has received the perfect obedience and sacrifice of Christ. Faith has received Christ's righteousness, holds it, possesses it. Paul says, I've gained it. So when we speak of faith imputed to him for righteousness, Paul understands that as inclusive of the righteousness. Faith having taken hold. That's why he says faith is reckoned as righteousness. And then he says righteousness is imputed to Abraham. Okay? So he's saying Abraham's faith has taken hold of that righteousness. And it's that righteousness that is imputed to him for his justification. It's very important to understand this. If, you, if we had a dump truck filled with gold bullion, okay, and I said, how much will you give me for the dump truck? Right. Now, your next question would probably be, well, do I get just the dump truck or everything that's included in the dump truck? Let's say there's uh, you know, uh, $500 million worth of gold bullion in the dump truck. What will you give me for the dump truck? It makes a big difference whether we're talking just the dump truck. I mean, what's the, what is the going rate for a dump truck these days versus with the gold bullion? Well, I'll give you, you know, it's worth over $500 million. So when it says faith here in Genesis 15.6 or Abraham believing God is imputed unto righteousness, what it's really saying is Abraham's faith having received the righteousness of Christ and it's that righteousness being held by faith It's the righteousness that has the value sufficient to provide the redemption for Abraham's justification. It's the righteousness. It's the gold. It's not the dump truck. It's the gold. Uh, You get a good deal on the dump truck full of gold, you can discard the dump truck. Give it to somebody else. Keep the gold. That's the point. It's inclusive of the object of faith. Righteousness is imputed And we don't have time, certainly we've had the Sabbath school series on the federal vision, we don't have time to get into all of the many uh, erroneous things that have been drawn out of this supposed idea that it's Abraham's faith in and of itself that is reckoned unto righteousness. It is absolutely false, it's a misunderstanding of the text, and Paul makes it clear. Again, let me just draw your attention. What saith the Scripture? Verse 6, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes faith? Nope. Righteousness apart from works. That is the garment of salvation that clothes the believer. And somebody says, well, that's not what Genesis 15, 6 says. That's not what the Hebrew says. Well, Paul knew Hebrew. You know Hebrew better than Paul? Paul says it's the imputation, the legal transaction of just like in a bank account taking money out of one account and transferring it legally accounting it accrediting it to the other account paul says that's what it means you know hebrew better than paul Uh, let me up the ante here a little bit the holy spirit inspired paul to describe genesis 15 6 in that way the imputation of the righteousness of god do you know uh, hebrew better than the holy spirit uh, if, if you know Hebrew better than the Holy Spirit, we should cancel the worship service and, and form a new church, and we can gather together and worship you. And we can get in our psalm book and take out all the references to God and put your name. I mean, the, the fact is, what says the Scripture? God says by His Holy Spirit, through the foremost of the apostles, that God saves us. He justifies us by imputing 
righteousness to us. In closing, some application. Friends, there's no greater comfort than this. There's no greater comfort in life and death than knowing that your eternal destiny has been sealed, has been purchased, that you can't lose it, that you've trusted in Christ, you've clung to Him, and even though you're holding to Him, even more fundamentally, He's holding on to you, that you are in the hands of your Heavenly Father, that you're in the hands, the steady hands the immutable, unchangeably faithful hands of your Good Shepherd. There is no greater comfort than knowing that your right standing with God is on the basis of what Christ has already done. It's not hanging in the balance. It's not something that's yet to happen. It's something that has already happened. It's even an advantage. You have greater comfort than Abraham ever had. It's already happened. It is finished. No greater comfort. God is your shield. He's your exceeding great reward. Nothing more attractive than that. Nothing more stabilizing and comforting in your Christian life than that. Nothing more motivational in your life of godliness than knowing my sins are forgiven now and forever. I am right with God. He loves me. Underneath are the everlasting arms. He will work all things for my good. He's redeemed me and He loves me. That, my friends, is something that you need to have if you don't have it already. And all you need to do is believe God. Just believe God. I mean, you have two choices. You can call God a liar or you can believe God. Which is it going to be? Believe Him. Trust Him. He who promised is faithful. And, and so much more could be said, my friends, but let's bring it to a conclusion. We'll, we'll, Lord willing, we'll look at more of this chapter uh, when we have our next opportunity. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the righteousness that we have received through faith in Christ. We thank You that we, having believed God, have had that righteousness which we grip tightly in the hands of faith imputed to us that we are right with you that we have a perfect righteousness that will stand the test of your judgment at the last day and which even gives us a sense of hope and expectation not dreading that judgment though it is a fearful thing yet with joy inexpressible and full of glory hoping and desiring and even hastening the day of the return of our Savior. We pray in His name. Amen.